0: Let's pray. Father, for all the gifts that have been given this year to this church, to the new building, your place of worship, for computers, for microphones, for the sending of hundreds of thousands of dollars in missions, for the feeding of orphans, Lord, for toys for children to play with, Lord, for Bibles, to, children to read, for students to be taught, Lord, so that over and over again, every week, the message through the web would be broadcast to thousands of people. Thank you that you have raised up miraculously again this Sunday, a group of people who got out of their beds and were drawn to this place and say, I want my life to count. There has to be more than paying bills and dying. God, thank you that they understand a gift to Jesus will live with them forever. Father, thank you that our needs have been met this year. Thank you for jobs, houses, heat, clothing, food, open doors, bonuses. Oh, God, thank you for the privilege of giving. Thank you for the privilege of witnessing yesterday in a parking lot how we pray for that man and many like him in Spartanburg whose hearts are dangerously, tragically hard. Now, God, would you, as Dan comes to speak, would you soften the hearts of all of us that we would treasure the hearing. Thank you for our eardrums. And all the intricate nerves in our ear canals that we can hear sounds and our brains can figure words out and our hearts can delight in them because they're the words of God. May we tremble that we're hearing God speak through the flawless scripture that is the voice of God, and may we respond just as if Jesus had come here today and spoken. May the word of God spread where it's not been known, and may those who courageously speak it at risk of life Be protected, if it is your will, that they may preach again tomorrow. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Thank you, Richard. Morning, Hope Point. Uh, In 2007, uh, Brad Pitt said in an interview for Parade, he said this. He said, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I am the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you don't, then you don't get it. It seemed to me to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. See, Brad Pitt used God as an egomaniac because he believes that this is the message of Scripture. Uh, the problem with Brad's statement, though, is that it's only partly true, which makes it wholly false. It is true that God wants all the glory. And if we don't, in faith, acknowledge this, then we will not see eternal happiness. Perhaps Brad is thinking of verses like this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Or maybe he's thinking of Jesus in Matthew, where Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So yes, it is true that God wants all the glory. However, what Brad is missing is the gospel. Brad is missing the good news that goes along with God's demand for glory. You see, the way God maximizes his glory is by deferring his anger against those that do not give him glory. Isaiah 48, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He defers his anger so that people like Brad will not profane his name by calling him an egomaniac. He maximizes his glory by restraining his judgment. You see, God knows that we are incapable of giving him the honor and the glory that he deserves, right? Romans 3 tells us that nobody seeks God. Nobody fears God. And so what does God do? In the ultimate act of humility, he dies. He comes and is murdered by the people who call him an egomaniac. He is murdered by us, so that those who are incapable of giving him glory, people like me and like you, may be able in Christ to give him the glory that he deserves, and then we can then experience this eternal happiness. So rather than God being full of ego, we have a God that's full of humility. This is the subject of my sermon this morning. The humility of God. And the text that I think best conveys this, this humility, is Philippians 2, 6-8. And this is going to be my main text this morning, Philippians 2, 6-8. Let's read it together. Paul says, He, that's Jesus Christ, who though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, made, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Philippians 2 6 through 8 is part of a larger Christ hymn that goes all the way through verse 11. Verses 6 through 8 speak of Christ's humiliation, and then verses 9 through 11 speak of Christ's exaltation, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. We will only be considering his humiliation this morning. The way I want to unpack these verses is just by walking through them verse by verse because they're laid out in chronological order. Not that the verse numbers are in chronological order. That's obvious. It's the events of Christ's humiliation are in chronological order. The event in each verse leads to the event in the next verse. Think of it as a three-act play. A three-act play of Christ's humiliation. Look, look what I mean. Act 1, the humility of the pre-incarnate Christ in verse 6. And I'm going to use this word incarnate or incarnation. It just means when Christ became flesh, when Christ was born to Mary and Joseph in human form. And so act 1 is the humility of the pre-incarnate Christ before he came down to earth. Then that leads us to act 2, the humility of the incarnation. That's in verse 7 of him becoming flesh, the humility in that act. And then act 3 is the humility of the cross, and that is verse 8. It's a three-act play of Christ's humiliation. And when we get to act 3, we we'd see just how deep, how far Christ's humiliation will go. So let's start with act 1, the humility of the pre-incarnate Christ. Let's read that verse again. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here, we are asked to consider Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. The view we have of Jesus in verse 6 is that of him in heaven with the Father before he is born to Mary and Joseph here on earth. The ESV translates this Greek phrase, though he was in the form of God, and this is this is a very hotly debated phrase. There's pages and pages and pages of speculation on what did Paul really mean by form of God. And let me save you a lot of time. I read, I read a lot of them. Um, let me save you some time, though, and just say that the, it's answered in the immediate text here, and it's answered in the whole of Scripture. Here, in the next phrase, it speaks of Jesus being equal with God. And so this is what Paul meant when he said that Jesus was in the form of God, that Christ was in the form of God, that he was equal with God. And then when you get to verse 7, he says he took on the form of a servant. So he was equal with God, but he made himself equal with a servant. And furthermore, we see this all over Scripture that Jesus is equal with God and he coexisted with God for all of eternity, eternity past and eternity Let's look at a few of those. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you get all the way down to verse 14 in chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. He dwelt among us. So Jesus is the Word. So Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was with God. And Jesus, what? Was God. Equal with God. How about Colossians 1? He is the image. That's Jesus of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created god created and he used christ as his agent to create jesus is our creator hebrews 1:13 he is the radiance of the glory of god the exact imprint of his nature jesus even said this about himself i and the father are one. And then when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, And now, Father, glorify me in your, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when before the world existed. The scriptures testify that the historical Jesus is the Son of God, and that he has always existed with God the Father and is equal with him in every way. Jesus is not a created being, and any uh, lesser view of him is false teaching. And this is what Paul meant when he said that Jesus Christ, although he was in the form of God. I like the NIV, how it translates it here. It makes it a little bit easier to understand. It says, Jesus who being in very nature God. He's in very nature God. His pre-incarnate position was that of divine royalty worthy of the same honor, the same glory, the same fame as God the Father. This is the view that we get of Christ in verse 6, the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, Paul tells us that this ever-existing, this universe creator Jesus did not count this equality with God something to be grasped. Again, the NIV is helpful here how it says it, that... Who, being in the form, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't consider this equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he wanted to use it for the advantage of others. This is the humility of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the attitude of the Son of God before coming to earth. So then humility is a divine attribute. Humility has its origins in heaven. This is fascinating to me, verse 6, because we get a glimpse into the mind of Christ. That's what we we get here. In verse 6, we enter the mind of Christ. What was on the mind of the Son of God regarding his position, his prestige with the Father? What was he thinking about that moved him to come to earth? That's what we get to see in verse 6. We get a glimpse into the mind of the creator. What was he thinking about? What was his attitude? He did not have the value of his own position on his mind. No. He had the, the value of others on his mind. This is what... Christ was thinking about while in heaven. He did not count his position as something to hold on to or to grasp while others were separated by their sin from the Father. In his pre incarnate state, Christ's mind was on you. In his pre incarnate state, he was not preoccupied with selfish ambition or using his position for his own advantage. He was not interested in using his position to, to get and be served, but rather to give and serve so that others could have and be served. This is the humility of the preincarnate Christ. Humility has its origin in heaven. Humility began before the foundations of the world as God was planning our redemption. Jesus used his privileged status not to trample on those beneath him, Neither did, he use, neither did he view his privileged status um, in such a way that made him uh, sort of forget the needs of those around him. No, it was precisely because of his privileged status that he resolved to redeem those that were beneath him. He was so confident in his position before the Father. He was so confident in the Father's love for him that he would do anything the Father asked of him, even if it meant giving up his privileged status with the Father in heaven. How did he set aside his privileged status? Well, that leads us to Act 2 of Christ's humiliation. Act 2, the humility of the Incarnation. Look how verse 7 says it. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Here we have this massive contrast. The Son of God, equal with God, did not view his position with God as something to hold on to, but instead emptied himself. His heavenly attitude of humility moved him to action. Humility led to emptying. Humility led to emptying. Humility is an attitude, but it leads to action. Humility is not a passive thing. Humility is an active thing. If if I were writing a definition for humility based on these verses, I would say humility is actively seeking a lower position for the benefit of others. This this is divine humility. Humility. Divine humility moves one to action and it moves Christ to lay aside all the glory, all the fame, all the honor that he had with the Father. Again, this, these two words here are pretty hotly debated on what Paul meant by emptying himself. Again, I'll save you some time. Two phrases right here, modify what it meant to empty himself. These two, next two clauses modify what it meant to empty it, meant by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. This is what it meant for Christ to empty himself. The text says nothing about him losing deity, does it? No. He lost none of his divine attributes by coming to earth. Jesus, while on earth, was still all-powerful, all-knowing, and omnipresent. His miracles, as documented in the first four books of the New Testament, prove that, right? What he emptied himself of in coming to earth was the glory and the fame and the honor associated with being the Son of God. He set set aside his divine right to glory and took on the form of a servant. So the question is not, what did he empty himself of? But what did he empty himself into? He emptied himself into the form of a servant. Again, looking at other translations is helpful. The NIV renders this two-word phrase as he made himself nothing. The King James Version says he made himself of no reputation. The Son of God, with all the reputation, the creator of the universe empties himself. Have no reputation. It's often rendered to, often translated to render void of no effect. It means that Christ left, left his position, his rank, his privilege, and they were of no use to him on earth. Nobody recognized that position of his on earth. He gave it up. He was willing to do this for you. We don't deserve it. Before we're even born, Jesus was busy emptying himself for you. Before you can do any good works, Jesus was busy emptying himself for you, to rescue you. This is humility. The phrase is meant to encapsulate for us the entirety of Christ's descent from the highest of glories to the lowest of depths. Notice that the text says that he emptied himself. And he emptied himself. It's important to know that this was voluntary. Yes, it was obedience, as we'll see in the next verse, but it's voluntary obedience. The Father did not make him of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. No one forced him to leave heaven. It wasn't an accident or a plan gone wrong. It was a purposeful, voluntary act of emptying himself himself. For you, Christ Jesus voluntarily brought the whole of his divine nature into a new and lowly state. Something that had not scripture revealed it to us, we would think would be unthinkable, unimaginable to us. That the God of the universe would do this for people that do not want to give him glory. But this is what the scripture tells us. This phrase, emptying himself, sort of rings with the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which is known as the suffering servant, that he poured out his soul to death. That the Messiah was going to pour his soul out to death. Christ knew this was coming. Christ knew what was coming in this act of pouring himself out. For us. In order to die, he had to bring himself into the mortal condition of man, right? He's immortal. He can't die. So he has to bring himself into our condition. The Lord of the universe becomes a servant. The Creator takes on the likeness of the Creator. The immortal becomes mortal. The humility of God is Christ emptying himself of his divine right to glory and privilege in order to rescue those who are shackled to sin and death. This is the humility of Christ. In order for you to be filled with life, Christ had to empty himself into mortality. Christ had to empty himself into death for us to be filled with life. So Christ's right to eternal glories were not a platform for self-display or self-advancement. This is the opposite, right, of this view of God as an egomaniac. His eternal glory was an avenue for self-denial. His eternal glories were to be poured out for others and not hoarded for himself. He used his privilege to benefit others. This is humility. This is the humility of the God we serve. Let me just, there's tons of application in this for the believer and unbeliever. But let me just pause and think about application for the believer right now. If you see where this hymn is placed in Paul's teaching in Philippians, you'll see. That Paul tells us just a few verses earlier to, in humility, count others more significant than, our, than yourselves. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that launches him into this uh, three-act play of Christ's humiliation. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. And have this mind among yourselves, which you already have in Christ. And look how Christ did it. So he's using Christ's humiliation as an example for us and how we ought to use our humiliation. So, my question is then, given where this hymn, this Christ hymn is in in Paul's teaching, is how are you using your privilege? how can you pour out your privilege in a redemptive way? I don't mean like Christ did. We can't do that, right? I mean, how can you empty yourself of the privilege that you've been given in order that someone else might hear or experience the love of Christ, the redemptive love of Christ? You know, I was thinking about this. I think there are three possible ways that privilege can affect us. First, privilege can cause you to look down on others that don't have it, right? In such a way that you might trample on others. Privilege can do that to you. Also, privilege can uh, make you so comfortable that you just sort of don't see the needs of others. You get so comfortable in your privilege that you're just sort of oblivious to all the needs around you. And then three, and this is what Christ did, He poured out his privilege for the benefit of others. As a believer, you have the privileged knowledge of the truth of the gospel. The way of redemption has been revealed to you. How will you pour out your soul in order that others may have this same privilege? How will you empty yourself for the sake of others? Paul tells us to have this humble, Christ-like attitude that leads to action. How will we, believers, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves? The answer is in Christ's action here. It's in the emptying. This is how we count others more significant than ourselves. It's in the pouring out. It's not easy, but we can do it because the Scripture says that we have the mind of Christ. Because you believe, you have the same mind. The same humble mind in you because Christ is in you. And you can, in Christ, empty yourself for the sake of others. What might emptying look like? Maybe emptying looks like opening up your home for a Bible study. It might look like inviting a family over to share a meal with you. It might look like leading a small group. It might look like giving money. It might look like meeting one on one for discipleship with somebody, giving up your time, emptying your schedule for somebody else. It might be going against all that is in you and introducing yourself to someone you do not know on a Sunday morning. It might be partnering with a local ministry on a weekly basis. It might be going on a short-term mission trip. It might be planning a church. It might be spending three months on the foreign mission field. It might be going to a foreign country and giving your life for that country so that others may have the privileged knowledge of the gospel. When we get in our new building, there will be many opportunities to empty yourself. It might be volunteering to serve in the children's ministry as it grows. It might be teaching a class. It might be parking cars. It might be greeting guests. You might be signing up for Sidewalk Hopes, new location right behind our building. I could go on and on and on. It might might be students going to lunch with that person that doesn't have friends (coughs) and sitting with that person that does not have friends. It could look a thousand ways. What does emptying look like for you? Christ has this mind and so do you. You have this mind. We have been filled in order to be poured out. That's the principle here. We have been filled in order to be poured out. If we are going to act like Christ, then we should view our privilege and advantage as something to pour, be poured out and not to be held on to. Poured out for the sake of others. And close my application right there. So at the end of verse 7, we come to the completion of the incarnation. Christ is now in human form. He's born in the likeness of men, which leads us to the third act of Christ's humiliation. And we see just how deep Christ's humiliation will go. It's verse 8, act 3. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's it's as if Paul sort of takes a breath. All right. Now that Jesus is in human form, listen what he did. He humbled himself, again. It it didn't end with him emptying himself with all the fame and all the glory of being the Son of God. It didn't end with him just coming to earth and then dying of natural causes here on earth. No. Paul describes the immortal Son of God becoming flesh as emptying himself. As unimaginable as that sounds, it was not the end of his voluntary humiliation. The humiliation of Christ included his own death. The Son of God who consented to becoming human died the most brutal death, death on a cross. Paul says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So then, what I get from that is obedience is an act of humility. Obedience is an act of humility. Obedience was more important to Christ than fame and privilege and honor. Obedience was more important to him. Humble obedience at this level has the potential of ending in death. Christ was not obedient to death. He was obedient to the Father, which resulted in His death. Death was not His master, for without His consent, death had no power over Christ. The only way... For death to have any power over the Son of God was for him to consent to it. Again, it says, he humbled himself by doing this. Christ did this. In order for the curse to be lifted, he had to volunteer because death had no power over him. It reminds me of the fictional tale, children's tale, the Chronicles of Narnia. Young Peter turns out to be a traitor and sides with the White Witch, a wicked queen in Narnia. And Peter soon finds out that he chose the wrong side. But it's too late. The offense has already occurred, and according to the rules of Narnia, there must be bloodshed. So the white witch makes her way to the camp of Aslan, the great lion, the lord of all Narnia. And she declares in front of all, Aslan, you have a traitor in your midst. His offense was not against you, Aslan replies. Have you forgotten the laws upon, upon which Narnia was built, she says? Don't recite the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written, says Aslan. Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me and that his blood is my property, the rich replies. Aslan knows, she continues, that unless I have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will perish in fire and water. That boy belongs to me. And he must die on the stone table. She's right. And so Aslan, the great king, volunteers to die on the stone table in the boy's place. The white witch is satisfied with this, as Aslan, the great lord of Narnia, will be dead and her great enemy will be dead. So she renounces her claim on the boy's blood. Aslan then willingly goes to the stone table and is sacrificed at the hands of the witch and her helpers. Lucy and Susan, Peter's sisters, watch as Aslan dies at the hand of the white witch. The girls stay there all night, mourning the death of their great king. When morning breaks and it's just the girls there, they see the resurrected Aslan. Susan runs over to Aslan and says, "'But we saw the knife in the witch,' Aslan cuts her off. "'If the witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice,' she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. And he says this, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself will turn backwards. When Christ went voluntarily to the cross and died, death itself turned backwards. And the need for further sacrifice was over, symbolized by the cracked stone table in the Narnia story. When a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, even death itself turns backwards. This is the work of Christ when He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was a willing sacrifice. For hundreds of years, think about this, for hundreds of years, unknowing, non-consenting animals were the means by which sin would be covered. Animal sacrifice taught us a divine principle. This is what animal sacrifice taught us that sin and guilt can be transferred from the head of the guilty to the head of the innocent. Thousands of animal sacrifices taught that sin can be atoned for by substitution, something can stand in your place. This is what animal sacrifice taught us. When a sinner brought an animal to the altar, the lesson of substitution was plain. This animal bears my sin. This animal bears my shame. This animal bears my guilt. And this animal is dying in my place. However, animal sacrifices were insufficient to totally take away sins as they had to be offered continually. And so the Old Testament prophets foresaw that only a perfect man could be the perfect substitute that once and for all would satisfy the wrath of God for all those who believe. At the heart of this substitution was the perfect Son of God, delighting to do the will of His Father, obeying to the point of death. Christ is our perfect substitute. And Paul adds this phrase, that he was obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. Why? He's emphasizing. He wants to make sure to let us know that the cross was the mode of death. With this, Paul continues to show just how deep Christ's humiliation will go. No limit on that which Christ would do in obedience to the Father and in rescuing sinners from their sin and from death. Christ's humiliation reaches its peak at the cross where the one who shared the divine glory with the Father is then rejected by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Shows the magnitude of the rejection and humiliation of the Son of God. Jesus became a curse. Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse. How? He purposely and voluntarily stepped into the curse for you. He got off His kingly throne and lay in a feeding trough for you. He walked away from the angelic praise of heaven to be mocked by by those who do not want to give Him glory. The author of life was murdered for you. He took off his royal robe and put on a criminal's cross for you. This is the humiliation, humility of God. He is not an egomaniac. He is our one and only Savior. Let's give him the glory. Let me pray. Father, heavy verses, Lord. Uh, hard to imagine, hard to fathom hard to grasp it, just what you gave up. Lord, would you open our eyes. Lord, those of of us that have seen this and reached out in faith for you, we just give you glory to be reminded of the humiliation, the humility of our God. Would you use these words this morning? Or to open the eyes of someone that has been rejecting you, that is not willing to give you glory, would you melt their heart of stone with the humiliation of Christ? Uh, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, you didn't stay dead, but because of your great humiliation, you've been given a name that is above every name. You were raised from the dead. And that same Spirit that rose you from the dead is in us, raised us from our spiritual death, and we'll raise our bodies when we die all because of Christ's humiliation oh God let us see it, uh, let, us, let, it let us feel it in our soul in our bones uh, let us understand just how far you went to rescue us to rescue us from our sinning from our rejection from our laziness from our lackadaisicalness Lord Uh, You died for every single sin that was committed last night, and every future sin for all those who believe. Teach us, Holy Spirit, break into our hearts, Uh, Lord, fill us so that we may pour out just like you did. Would Would we be a church, Father, that would be known for being poured out for others? And may we be poured out anew when we get in our new building, Father. Show us many ways to pour ourselves out. Not for our own glory, but for your glory. Not for our own sake, but for the sake of those that do not give you glory yet. So would you use this church? You Use us individually, Father. Pour us out for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.